guys hear me? Good. All right. Good to be with you all today. Um, I, it was really good. I think we have maybe the youngest person who's ever visited New City Church. Uh, we have a four-day-old over here, wow. little Rowan uh, Nelson, Matthew and Hannah. Mom doing well. Mom and Dad here proud, and uh, we're glad to have you guys here, and glad to have the Amen Corner. If if Rowan wants to pipe up, you know, and just give an Amen, we're excited about that. Um, I uh, I want to see if you guys know a song that I grew up with in Sunday school, and uh, so if you know it, sing along. If you don't, it might be embarrassing, but whatever. Um, if you're happy and you know it, say Amen. Ah, if you're happy and you know it, say amen. amen. If you're happy and you know it, then your face will surely show it. If you're happy and you know it, say amen. amen. Wow, all right. Very nicely done. Nicely done. That was, uh, I, you know, I was a church kid growing up, and in Sunday school, that was one of my favorite ones, and we would, uh, it would be shouting matches, right? And, uh, <laughs> Uh, to say, who could say amen the loudest? And, um, but, you know, the thing about that song is it associates, uh, it associates worship, worship of God with happiness, with a smile on our face. If you're happy and you know it, your face will surely show it. Uh, amen. And, um, but, you know, do we always have to be smiling in order to be worshiping? No. And uh, there, was, there was something that happened to me uh, several years ago when we had just planted this church that really revealed that truth to me in a little bit of a deeper way. Um, and it was, uh, it was a couple who was, who was part of this church and had, you know, just came in on a, on a Sunday to worship. And, um, but they, they told me later that week um, just that they had kind of been hurt from some things that happened on Sunday. And... Um, and what it was was the person who was leading worship, and I'm pretty sure it was me. They didn't tell me it was me, but I think it was me. Um, but the person who was leading worship kind of said a few things like that. If you're, if you're happy to be here, if you're excited to worship God, you know, or, or put a smile on your face or what, whatever it is, which is, which is fine. But what, happened, what had happened with this particular couple in this particular moment is just a few days earlier, they had found out that they had uh, had a miscarriage. And, and so it was all they could do to bring themselves, to, to bring themselves together and come into uh, together with the people of God on a Sunday. And what happened in that moment was the feeling of, is there a place for us here? Is, can we be here and worshiping God in the midst of our brokenness if you have to be excited to be worshiping God? And I think I've kind of already answered it. You guys kind of already answered it. No, you don't have to be smiling to be truly worshiping. And I think it brings up the other question, how do we, as the people of God, how do we as a community of faith deal with, walk through suffering? How do we walk through grief? How do we walk through times when we feel abandoned, abandoned even by God? And I think one of the things I, I, that I have seen in this church, we know that verse that says, rejoice with those who rejoice, and weep with those who weep. We know what it's like to be there for one another. If you're going through it, I have seen it time and time again in my brothers and sisters that are part of this church, that we are there for each other. When it gets hard, when, when, when things um, are difficult, 
we know how to be there. And we know how to be there and rejoice with each other. But the question I'm asking goes a little bit deeper than just the horizontal, like being there for each other. This is what, what do we, how do we respond to suffering in light of our faith? What does our faith look like in the middle of suffering? And what does our worship look like in the middle of suffering? Learning how to deal with suffering is something that all of us have to do, not just Christians. All of us have to do that. And culture um, has a lot of different ways. There's a lot of different popular ways to deal with suffering, everything from ignoring it to, you know, don't worry, be happy, right? Right? I'm just, that's, that's my attitude towards suffering. Just try not to think about it. Try to get away from it. Or maybe it's the other side where it's like, well, you know, I can't say this word, but stuff happens, right? Stuff happens, get over it. Stuff happens, get over it. Don't be attached to it because it just happens and you just have to buck up and move on and pull, pull yourself together and do everything you can to just move ahead. And then on the other side, you've got Christian culture that a lot of times can say this, if you've really got faith, you won't even be hurt by the things that you go through. If you've got strong enough faith, you can have a smile on your face no matter what. If you really have faith, you won't have a life that's full of pain and loss. Sometimes we can be guilty of saying those, and I don't think either one of those approaches, any of those approaches I've mentioned are healthy when it comes to dealing with and and coping with and worshiping through suffering. Because on the one side, we ignore our feelings and just say, you know, either don't worry, be happy, or uh, whatever it happens, I got to get through it. And then on the other side, we we ignore our situation. We, we, we paste over it. It's not actually true. It doesn't do justice to what actually goes on in our lives. Can I get an amen? So we need healthy ways to process grief and disappointment because unprocessed suffering and, and suffering that's processed in an unhealthy way turns up in other negative ways. It turns up in our moods, it turns up in our words, it turns up in anger or um, resentment or violence. It, it, it shows up in all sorts of ways. But God's word gives us a pathway to God, even in the middle of suffering. And, and what it's called, and what I want to talk about today is lament. Everyone say Lament. Lament, prayer of lament, song of lament. Lament just means a passionate expression of grief or sorrow. Um, And it's a way that we as the people of God can give expression to our deepest, most personal, most gut-wrenching feelings when we're really going through things, but also how we can bring them to God. And what lament gives us in the scriptures is a way of properly addressing God as we're going through tough times, not just ignoring the tough times and not ignoring God, but bringing the tough times to God. And it's not rare in scripture. You guys, if you were here last week, you heard um, how God had really put the Psalms on my heart. And we talked about how God reveals himself in Psalm 19. Um, And this week, I want to talk about another Psalm that is a Psalm of lament. But I don't know if you know this, over half of the Psalms, Psalms is the largest book in the Bible, 150 different Psalms. prayers of God's people that have been, the first one was written probably 3,400 years ago, right? So this is a big chunk of the Bible. Did you know that over half of the Psalms are some kind of lament? Over half 
of the biggest book in the Bible has to do with lament, and yet I don't think it's a muscle that we exercise very much in Christianity because we either grit through it or we suffer on our own or we find some other ways to get through it. But this is something that God has given us in his word to teach us how to deal with pain and suffering, whether it's personal pain and suffering or whether it's corporate and communal. We have communal laments and we have personal laments. And we're going to look at Psalm 31 today, and it is uh, more of a personal lament. But um, it's a way that we're able to be real with our situation and with our God. That's what lament is. I love this quote from Ann Voskamp about, uh, she's talking about the difference between a lament and a complaint. And she says this, I have it up here. Lament is a cry of belief in a good God, a God who has his ear to our hearts, a God who transfigures the ugly into beauty. Complaint is the bitter howl of unbelief in any benevolent God in this moment, a distrust in the love beat of the Father's heart. Prayers of lament help us to be real with God and at the same time real with our situation. Because how many know we're not always on the mountaintop? And when we're in the valley, we need to still be able to walk with God and God has graciously given us some ways to do that. And so I want to look in that. And we need to grow in lament. We need to, I need to grow in lament as a Christian. Each one of us needs to grow in lament and also as a church because if we don't, our faith will suffer. Our faith will suffer. And what we'll do as a church is we'll, we'll learn to be a church that hides instead of a church who loves. Right? Say, how you doing? Oh, I'm fine. How are you doing? I'm also fine. <laughs> and I'm also going to be fine all 52 Sundays of this year. Right? <laughs> I don't know about Monday through Saturday, but uh, I'm fine. What was that movie? Fine, fine. Oh, that's a long time ago. All right. Um, all right, so Psalm 31. You guys with me? Yes. We're going to read through uh, parts of this, not the whole psalm, but I am going to look through chunks of it and, and go to the end. It's a psalm of David written by um, King David, and um, it's a personal lament, as I already said, and I just want to start at verse 1, uh, and we'll kind of go from there. And if you have a Bible, read with me. If not, it'll be on the screen behind me. Psalm 31, verse 1. In you, Lord, I have taken refuge. Let me never be put to shame. Deliver me in your righteousness. Turn your ear to me. Come quickly to my rescue. Be my rock of refuge, a strong fortress to save me. Since you are my rock and my fortress, for the sake of your name, lead and guide me. Keep me free from the trap that is set for me, for you are my refuge. Into your hands I commit my spirit. Deliver me, Lord, my faithful God. First thing we see is David is in distress. I don't know the backstory, I don't know all the details, we're not given them. But David is in some kind of situation where his heart is in, is in distress. And I want you to notice this. He's not hiding. He's not waiting till he has it figured out. He's going to God. First things first, if you're going through it, we've got to go to God. And we've got to go to God first. How many know how easy it is that if you were going through um, a time of suffering and our loss to go to other things other than God. 
It's so easy to go to something that's going to numb me, something that's going to get my mind off of it, something that's going to distract me. And yet what we see in the first verses of this psalm is, yes, David's in distress, and no, he doesn't have it figured out yet, but he is going to God. I need a rock. I'm going to God. I need a refuge. I'm going to God. I need a fortress. I'm going to God. And you see, you feel the tension in the verses. He says, he says um, be my rock, be my fortress. And then it says, since you are my rock, you are my fortress. Like it's, it's this desperate plea. I've got to go to God with this distress because anything else that I'm going to is not going to give me what I truly need. Amen. And go to God first, not when you have it figured out. You don't have to wait until you figure it out on your own before you start praying. Anyone ever been there? I feel like I got to figure it out here before I go to God. What am I going to do? What am I going to do about this? And then like, oh, yeah, I can pray. (laughs) Anyone? I've been there. We've got to learn to go to God. And through this psalm, we're learning to go to God and to go to God first. You may not know what's going to happen tomorrow, but you know who holds tomorrow. Amen. All right. Um, We're moving quick, so you guys got to stay with me, all right? Next thing. Uh, Verses 9 through 12. I want to read that. Psalm 31, 9 through 12. David moves on to say this. Be merciful to me, Lord, for I am in distress. Then he describes it. My eyes grow weak with sorrow, my soul and body with grief. My life is consumed by anguish and my years by groaning. My strength fails because of my affliction and my bones grow weak. Because all of my enemies, because of all of my enemies, I am the utter contempt of my neighbors and an object of dread to my closest friends. Those who see me on the street flee from me. And then verse 12, I am forgotten as though I were dead. I've become like broken pottery. That is dark. That's dark and heavy. And I was talking about this with uh, my wife, Hannah, and, and uh, we were saying if, if a friend had a journal entry like that and they showed it to me, I would be concerned, right? And yet, Kenny, this is the Bible? (laughs) I thought the Bible was supposed to be positive, encouraging, like K-Love Radio, right? (laughs) Positive, encouraging. What if this was your scripture of the day on the Christian radio station? (laughs) I am forgotten as though I was dead. I feel like I'm broken pottery. And yet to me, it actually is encouraging. You know why? Because I felt like that before. And here it is in the word of God to remind me that God knows and understands. (laughs) Thing about broken pottery or broken vessel, depending on the translation you read, in, in that ancient world, pottery was used for all sorts of things, not just Beautiful things, but to hold olive oil or to make a lamp or to hold jars of water. And to say you feel like broken pottery is to say, I used to have, I used to be useful, but now I'm useless. 
I used to be beautiful, but now I feel worthless. I'm shattered. What we can learn from David in this psalm and in his prayer that's applicable to our lives is this. Not only do we need to go to God when we're in times of distress, but we have to get real with God. It's not just okay to get real with God. We need to get real and to be real with God. We need to really talk about in prayer how the things we are going through are making us feel. We don't have to be tight-lipped when it comes to God listening to us. We need to come to God with brutal honesty because God can handle that. Not only can God handle it, he's the only one who actually knows you. He's the only one that truly knows what's going on, even more so than anyone else who's the closest person to you. He knows and he loves you. There's no boundaries with God when it comes to sharing what's going on in your heart. He's not going to say, oh, that's, that's word vomit. I don't want to hear that. Oh, you kind of overshared, Kenny, uh, TMI. Um, <laughs> I didn't want to know that. No, he knows. And it's okay. We need to bring what's going on in our hearts to God. And that's one of the powerful things of the lament. This is a personal one, but there's the ones that are communal. Uh, the power of it is in saying, God, what is going on is not the way it should be. And you know what the power is in, in that? Is that you are bringing that to a God of justice. You're not just complaining that things aren't the way they should be. No, it's because God is a God of justice and righteousness. And when you bring it to God, you're saying, this is not how it should be. I have a quote from Adele Alberg Calhoun, who wrote the uh, Spiritual Disciplines Handbook um, that I love, but she said this about lament. Sometimes the best response to the brokenness of this world and my own life is a mixture of tears and prayers. And when we do that, we're actually in, we're in solidarity even, even, with, even with the Holy Spirit that lives in us. Romans 8.26 says this, in the same way, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. We do not know what we ought to pray for, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us through wordless groans. That we are, when we are in that time and when we're in those places in life and when we're in that prayer where we are being real and honest with God, where we even run out of words and don't know how to describe it, that we are, that we are in solidarity with the Spirit at work in our life. Praying and interceding for us. So the first thing that we learn in the lament is we've got to go to God, not to anything else, not to another false God, not to anything that's going to distract us. We've got to bring it to God. And the second thing is we, we've got to get real with God and bring forward and bring up with him in prayer the things that are going on in our hearts. Next section we're going to read is verse 14 through 16. It says this, but it's a very important word. <laughs> But I trust in you, Lord. I say, you are my God. My times are in your hands. Deliver me from the hands of my enemies. From those who pursue me. Let your face shine on your servant. Save me in your unfailing 
love. But I trust in you, God. That's one of the powerful things about the laments is that you're not just bringing, it's not just a complaint session, but it's, a, it's laying out your complaint in the context of a God who hears. Even when you can't feel that he's hearing you, even when you don't know that he's hearing you, there's this decision that David makes. He makes a conscious decision to trust in the Lord no matter what. makes a conscious decision to trust in the Lord no matter what. No matter what it looks like on the outside. I love verse 15 because it it gives us this paradox where it says this, my times are in your hands. That sounds like such a message of faith, right? That we're hearing from David, like you're in control, right? But the very next sentence so my times are in your hands. In the very next sentence, deliver me from the hands of my enemies. Wait a second. Whose hands are you in, David? Are you in God's hands or are you in your enemy's hands? How many know it can be confusing sometimes? God, I thought I was in your hands, but it seems like these other people have control over my life. God, I thought you were in control of this, but it seems like my joy, my future, my position at work, my my family seems like it's in the control of other people right now. But God, I believe that I'm in your hands. I'm in your hands, so deliver me from their hands. My times are in your hands. (laughs) Deliver me from the hands of my enemies. There's a tension there. I know what it looks like, and I'm acknowledging what it looks like. I'm not ignoring the situation, but I'm saying I still trust God despite what it looks like. One of my favorite quotes from uh, Charles Spurgeon um, is this, God is too good to be unkind, and he's too wise to be mistaken. And when we cannot trace his hand, we must trust his heart. There's part of lament that says, I have no idea how this is going to work out. I have no idea why you allowed this, God. People say everything happens for a reason. I have no idea. That's actually infuriating that they would say this about this. God, I don't know. But I trust in you. But I trust in you, Lord. Maybe you're here today and you're going through something. Or maybe if you're not, listen up because you are. How many know life brings us stuff? We still need to know this ahead of time so that when we go through it, we have our mind made up. But maybe you're here and you're at that moment where it's like you you can't see the next step, but you just got to say, I'm making a conscious decision to trust in God for the next step, no matter what, no matter what. In the last section of the psalm that I want to read from, verse 21 and 22, says this, Praise be to the Lord, for he showed me the wonders of his love when I was in a city under siege. In my alarm, I said, I am cut off from your sight. 
Yet you heard my cry for mercy when I called to you for help. I love about that verse. The phrase that really catches my attention is that God showed me the wonders of his love. And I was reading a little bit about the word, the Hebrew words that are used to express that. And it's, it's basically saying that God like revealed his love to me in an overwhelming, unexpected way, right? God showed me the wonders of his love. And when I think of God's wondrous love, you think of like something awesome, right? Like you think of like green pastures or you think of like waves and a nice beach or you think of, you know, Yosemite and viewing the sights and like that's where I want to feel God's wondrous love, right? <laughs> but where, where does it say? You showed me the wonders of your love when I was in a city under siege. Not just in the heights, not just in the amazing experiences, not just in the beautiful things. And yes, we do experience God in those things. The hope that I hear in this passage is that David didn't have to be on the mountaintop to experience the wonders of God's love. Because a city and siege, that's one of the worst places I can think that you would want to be. Your supply lines are cut off. You're surrounded by enemies who want nothing more than just to kill you, and they're willing to wait it out. You're running out of food. You're running out of water. People are dying. You can't defend yourself. You can't defend your family. You're a sitting duck waiting for it to be over. You're hopeless. And what does David say? That's where God showed me the wonders of his love. And when I was in the middle of that, he says, I cried out, you can't even see me, God. And what did he say? Yet he heard me. He heard my cry for mercy. Yes. What do we learn from this? What am I encouraged to see in this part of David's prayer of lament? It's this, to look for God's love in the middle of your situation. To look for God's love in the middle of your situation, not just after it. Not just the, uh, not just the storm is over now and I can look back and see how, how you were in control. But like, no, the storm is still going and God, I'm looking, for, I'm looking for glimpses of your love. Show me your wondrous love in the middle of this storm. Because God, I don't know how it's going to turn out. And what this passage reminds me and what the word of God reminds me all the way through in the story of the gospel is that God will reveal himself even in those moments. You know, the most well-known psalm, uh, Psalm 23, you prepare a table before me where? In the presence of my enemies. I'm surrounded by enemies who want me dead, but God, you are serving me bountifully with your love in the middle of that situation. Can I remind you today, church, and I know this is all basic stuff. I, I, this isn't mind-blowing stuff, but it's true, and maybe you just need a reminder that God is with you in the good moments, but he's also with you in the worst moments. He's, in, he's with us in our worst moments, in the worst moments, moments of your life. He will not only redeem your brightest days, but he will redeem especially your darkest nights. He will redeem it. He will redeem it. And it's so often that is the experience of, of people that I've walked with and, and my own uh, life and my own suffering that some of the times you hear God clearest is during those times. 
in the middle of a city under siege, that's where David experienced the wonders of God's love. And here's what I think that means for us. What I want to encourage you with is that your circumstance does not have the final word on your life. Just because you're going through a circumstance, your circumstance doesn't have the right to tell you the end of your story. Amen? These are not David's last words. <laughs> he went on to write other psalms. God delivered him even though he faced death. They were not his last words, but um, often I have thought about famous last words. You know, when, when um, you know, you, you hear people that their last words before they died, and I've wondered about that. How did they time that, right, you know? Because like you hear some of them and they're very inspiring. It's like, how did they know, you know? And how did they convey what they wanted to say? Um, how do you know what you want to express if someone's sharing their last words and they carry weight? And, and some of them, you know, um, don't always work. I know like uh, Frank Sinatra, his last words were, I'm losing it. And then, and then he died. And then there's some that are more encouraging or some that, that don't make sense. But, um, and you're thinking, why are you even talking about this, Kenny? But I am talking about something important, and it's this. When Jesus came to his hour of death, when he came to give his last words, he was surrounded by enemies. He was surrounded by people who were unlawfully killing him, even though he did nothing wrong. He had been beaten beyond recognition. He was bleeding and humiliated on the cross, and in the moments before he died, he chose his last words from Psalm 31. Luke 23, 46 has it. But he said this, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And then he breathed his last. And I think that when Jesus did that, he did that on purpose. To bring to mind this psalm that, hey, when everything looks like it's stacked up against you, when it looks like you're at your darkest night, when you don't know how you're going to get through it, here's what Jesus said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And David went on to live another day, but Jesus didn't. He died right then. And he was committing his spirit to God. And there's the thing, the beauty of the gospel is that Jesus was forsaken so that we would never be. He was cut off so that we could be brought close to God. We may feel cut off, but if we are here and our faith is in Christ, we are not cut off. But Jesus actually experienced. He became sin, even though he never sinned, so that we might become the righteousness of God. Jesus was given into the hands of his enemies so that you and I could be in the hands of God. And if your faith is in Jesus, the word says in John 10 that no one can take you out of his hand. No one can take you out of the Father's hand. No one can take you out of Jesus' hand. Even if it feels like your life is in the hand of your enemies, in the hand of your situation, he actually was given over to his enemies on the cross and gave himself up for his enemies on the cross so that we could be called friends, so that we could be brought into his hand. And that's why we can be comforted today, not just by bearing out our problems and telling them to God, but we can be comforted with hope. 
because he didn't just die for us, but he, he rose again. And in the middle of mourning and grief, that's why we can go to God. That's why we can be real with God and not hide away from the gruesome details because if anything, the cross shows us that God understands the gruesome details of our suffering. We can consciously decide to trust in God. We can look for God's love even in the worst situation because in the worst crime in history, Jesus, the sinless one dying at the hands of sinners, that's where we find the greatest expression of God's love for you and I because he did that for you and I. Amen? Jesus did that for us. I'm going to close with this image. If you're here today and you feel forgotten or you feel abandoned, if you feel like broken pottery, like the psalmist said, the cross shows us that Jesus was broken so you could be healed. And he rose again so that you could be restored. And that's a work that when you come to faith in Jesus, it has already begun and it is continuing that God is restoring you. And maybe you're here today and that doesn't feel true. Maybe your faith is in Jesus, but you still feel like broken pottery. And I can tell you, I've, I have felt that. Maybe you feel useless. Maybe you feel worthless. Maybe you feel like, what's the point or what's going on? But Jesus promises to restore you. And one of the best pictures that I've ever heard of it or, or, or seen that reminds me of that is this um, uh, it's a Japanese practice called kintsugi that maybe some of you have heard of. But it's the idea of it, pottery has broken, and n normally if a bowl breaks or whatever, you kind of just toss it, right? Um, it wasn't too expensive. It was, we'll just toss it. But in this practice, they restore it, but they don't just restore it with glue. They actually use a lacquer that incorporates gold. And so they look at the pieces that are broken and say, I want to put it back together, but I don't just want to put it back together. I want to make it more valuable when it's back together and more beautiful and more honorable and even honorable of the scars that this bowl has gone through. <laughs> and I have a couple pictures of it. Yeah, that's one. And then another one. And for me, that's a picture of what Jesus promises to do to your heart in the areas where you are broken in the areas where you feel like you're abandoned and like God is far away, and yet God is saying, I'm going to restore you, and it's going to be more beautiful. And the scars and the injury points are going to be the points where the light of the gospel shines through. Hear me, Christian. That the point that God is going to use you the most is the scars in your life that the gospel has healed. That's how God's going to speak through you to your neighbors and friends and coworkers and your family who doesn't follow Jesus. That's how God's going to use you. It's not through how amazing and glitz, glitz and glamour, although God uses that too, but he's, also, he's going to use those scars that have been healed by his grace and by his glory. He's going to use the times that you come to him and lament and say, God, I feel totally abandoned even by you, but I'm still here to say that I trust in you. I'm still here to say my times are in your hands, even though I feel like I got a lot of hands on me. 
God, my times are in your hands. Into your hands I commit my spirit. If you would, close your eyes with me and we're going to pray. And the band can come up. Father, I thank you for the opportunity that we have today to even call you Father. That you are good. You are so good, God. We can't even comprehend your goodness, and we can't even comprehend your love like we sang about it just a few moments ago about how you love us. You love us so much. Lord, I know that the brothers and sisters that are part of this church family, that in many ways we've had a tough year. And in many ways that's an understatement. And yet, God, I've seen the glimmers of faith and hope. We've seen your faithfulness in one another. And God, we thank you for that faithfulness, Lord. There are those who who are here today who may still be in that valley, who are still walking slowly through that valley. And God, I just pray for encouragement. I pray for even the encouragement to take another step, Lord. I pray for those of us that are here who maybe we're not going through a time of suffering and that's not, it's not our day. It's not that things are going great. Lord, I pray that we would have ears to hear, Lord, so that our faith would be strong, Lord, that our faith would not be weak or frail, Lord, but it would be strong in you and so that we could comfort our brothers and sisters. Holy Spirit, I, I just pray for um, a, unique, uh, a unique touch on every life here who needs encouragement, who needs their chin to be lifted up by you, who needs to feel your arms holding them. God, if they feel like they can't even stand, Lord, I just, I just pray for that, Lord. And I ask that in this time as we respond to your word, God, that that we would stand here and sit here with, with open hands and open hearts. And that we would trust you even if we don't understand you. And God, that we would see um, where you're healing our scars with this good news of Jesus. And that just that we'd be comforted, Lord, that Jesus, that you felt everything and more that David talked about in this psalm. Everything a million times more, Lord. Lord, we love you. We invite you. Have your way in these next few moments. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen, church.